0: Canaries in a coal mine. That's how scientists describe trees in urban areas. Those trees are already showing the effects of climate change and giving us a better idea of what our world will look like decades down the road. Today, we'll hear from local experts about their research and how it can help us prepare for a warming climate. From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter.
1: Hello and welcome to Straight Talk, I'm Laurel Porter. We love our trees in the Pacific Northwest, but how much do we know about them, especially our trees in the city? City life can be stressful on people and scientists say it is hard on our trees too. Warm temperatures, drought, pollution all have an effect. They also say what we see happening to our trees in the city now can teach us a lot about what we'll see happen in the future with climate change. We have some experts joining us who've studied trees and our climate. Welcome to my guest, Dr. Paul Loikith, assistant professor at Portland State University in the Department of Geography. He's also the director of Portland State's Climate Science Lab. Dr. Aaron Ramirez is an assistant professor at Reed College in environmental studies and biology. He also leads his student researchers using a mobile bio base camp lab, looking at ways to address environmental challenges. Dr. Todd Rosensteel is an associate professor of biology at PSU and the associate dean of research and graduate programs at the college. He's also the director of the PSU Center for Life in Extreme Environments. And also joining us, our very own KGW chief meteorologist, Matt Zafino. Matt has observed, studied and reported on Northwest weather and the region's climate for 35 years. Thank you all for joining us here on Straight Talk. What a pleasure to have you all here. Thanks for having Thank us. You. I think we start with climate change is real. It's happening. But why should we care about how it's affecting our trees in the city? And let's start with Matt.
2: Well, you know there are the the environmental and the economic reasons we should care but Let's start with this. Our identity. I mean, the, it, we have a tree on our license plate in Oregon. I mean, it's it's kind of who we are here in Oregon, and we relate to that. Whether it's a Douglas fir or any other tree. And then also, and you know, think of Vancouver. Uh, Washington, Tree City, USA. So not only is it part of our identity, it totally increases the livability and enjoyability of our cities by having green space and having healthy green space. So I I would start with those two reasons and and then the environmental reasons, of course, we'll get into.
1: Professor Ramirez, how about you?
3: Yeah, I I think all of us that live here have a sense that our forests and trees are iconic to this region. And part of that is the climate that we have here is really conducive to growing really big trees that can live a long time, and so both of those features mean that we have forests that store the, the most carbon above ground of any forests on Earth.
4: Professor Rosenstiel. Yeah, I agree with both of what they said. I mean, to me, I moved to Oregon because of the trees. I love our giant trees. Uh, I think the thing that I'm most interested in lately is really how we can look deeply into the, to the science and the research of urban trees and how it might give us just a little snapshot of what might be coming to the rest of trees uh, throughout Oregon.
1: Professor yeah. Lukas.
0: Right, and so we mentioned that the climate is sort of essential for the types of trees that we have. It's because of the climate that we have, that we have the types of forests we have, that we have these unique ecosystems. So being reliant on that climate means that if that climate starts to change, that's going to also affect the ecosystems and the trees and the species that that we value and that, that we've had here for a long time.
1: Professor Aaron Ramirez, I want to ask you about, I mean, trees historically have been important to a lot of things, to the economy here in Oregon. What's special about our trees? How do our trees compare to the rest of the world?
3: Um, So like we already said, the the features of our climate allow for our trees to grow bigger and live longer. Mm -hmm. Um, We have trees that can grow to over 300 feet tall and live for over 2,000 years. Our western red cedar was incredibly culturally important to the Native American peoples that lived in this area before us. And um, and so those features of the forest um, are things that we have valued for a really long time and provide us with a lot of what we call ecosystem services. They help clean our air and regulate the way water moves through our environment, um, but they're also culturally and, and um, uh, important to us as well.
1: Aaron and Todd, you are, are doing a study. There's a partnership between PSU, Reed College, and Washington State University of Vancouver. Tell us uh, what the study is all about, what you hope to learn, Todd.
4: Yeah, so we've teamed up in a kind of collaboration across scientists to, to begin to understand really the how the stress of the urban landscape, high temperatures, drought stress may impact sort of the the long-term health and success of trees, so we're really trying to understand how urbanization affects tree stress and how that might be used as a proxy for understanding what future Oregon might look like.
1: Aaron, you want to build on that?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, so uh, our... Trees in this region are important, but there's some lessons to learn from some of the neighboring regions, like California and the American Southwest. Um, trees are dying with record rates and, and um, in ways that we haven't seen in the recent past. So, um, tree mortality uh, is on the rise globally, but also especially in the regions around us. And one of the things we're trying to do is understand what the impacts are likely to be for our forests in the near-term future. And also, towards the end of the 21st century.
1: Let's take a look at a picture. We have a, a couple of pictures. If we could go to the one from the Sierra Nevada, because you mentioned trees dying in other parts of the the country, right? And it shows a, a lot of dying trees here. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for people on podcast too, uh, can you both tell us what we're looking at here?
3: Yeah, sure. So this is a photograph of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and um, in. With the start of the recent multi-year drought, starting in about 2012, there's been over 100 million um, trees that have died in California. Um, when you look across some of the recent drought periods in the American Southwest, we're estimating um, that it's over 400 million dead trees in uh, in the American Southwest in California. So. We haven't seen anything like that yet here in the Pacific Northwest, but we are starting to see some signs of trees being uh, um, impacted, especially by the hotter, drier summers we've had in years like 2015, 17, and 18, which have been the hottest and driest on record. And um, so a big part of our research objective is to Um, better understand when in the future and if we might expect some of the same kinds of tree mortality impacts we're seeing in
2: other places.
1: And you're looking at trees. Uh, Matt, did you have a question about that? Yeah, I was just
2: wondering, have you seen attribution studies about the die-off in California? That's a huge number of trees. Is it directly attributable to the warmer temperatures and therefore do you you project that to a a global warming reason as well or are there other factors that are playing into the die-off?
3: Yeah, so the tree-killing droughts that we're seeing in places like California, the big issue is the warmer temperatures. So the precipitation anomalies that we've seen in California and other places are not historic necessarily, but the co-occurrence of those with um, much warmer temperatures means that the evaporative demand on trees uh, is much higher than it has been historically. And that component is really important to um, what we call the vascular health of the trees so as that atmosphere gets warmer and drier it pulls harder on the water in those trees um, and it creates stress in the tree, and that stress can accumulate and, and eventually cause the tree to die. And that's the number one cause of mortality in places like California, is this failure of the vascular system to conduct water.
2: So that's what you meant by the evaporative demand. It's just the trees are evaporating, losing more water readily to the atmosphere that way, because and that stresses Because it's so them. hot? Because
3: it's so hot, yeah. So the way trees move water through their bodies is pretty incredible. They can move large volumes of water, with very little input of their own energy. And they do this by opening these little pores in their leaves um, that expose the water in their leaves to the dry atmosphere. And that drives evaporation from the leaf surface. We call this transpiration. And this transpiration literally pulls water up through the plant uh, from from the soil into the roots all the way up through the plant. Um, And when it does that, it creates tension on the water in the, in the, the stems of the plant. And if that tension becomes too great, that water column can break, air can get sucked into those conduits and, um, and cause dysfunction of the hydraulic system. And that's one of the things we're focusing on
4: with our and research. And it's
1: not just in California. We have a picture from the study that you're doing from Lentz Park right in Portland. And Todd, yep. can you tell us about this?
4: Yeah, this is actually a, a photograph of one of our study sites uh, that we've been looking at for the last couple of years. And in fact, um, I don't remember which year this was taken. This was just this This current season. This current season. And so when we had started this study site, um, we're looking at some cedar trees that are a mix of brown, um, as you might see in some of the southwest hills across Portland people have been noticing some dieback of a western red cedar and looking at this particular photo when we started this study um, these were beautiful green trees Um, and so we happened to choose a study location um, which seems to have accelerated the rate of sort of evaporative water loss Um, and we're trying to understand basically the underlying mechanism uh, of what's contributing to the dieback of these trees in the city and what that might tell us about what's coming.
2: So this might be a dumb question but uh, do they water that area Hmm. since it's in a city park is it getting irrigation throughout the dry season?
3: Yeah. Go ahead. So that particular area was not being watered during okay. the year that That's that hard. mortality started. Um, it it's, uh, turns out it's really complicated to figure out where irrigation is happening at, a, at any certain park. Um, so we're trying to get a better handle on that and ways in which irrigation might be able to alleviate some of these effects. But um, that is a unique feature of our urban trees.
1: What trees are most affected?
3: Mm. So um, what, one of the things we're doing right now is looking specifically at native trees. So those are trees that, are, that occur in our area naturally. Um, we're using the urban environment as a study system because it's warmer than our forests surrounding the city. Um, the temperatures that trees experience in the city are on par with what we predict for the end of the 21st century. Um, So it's a way for us to to get a proxy for how trees might respond to climate change. Um, And what we've learned so far is that each of the native tree species that we've looked at so far is responding very differently to increasing temperatures. So that's one of the take-home messages is that our forests are going to respond in really complex and not and sometimes counterintuitive ways. Um, What we've observed so far is that Western red cedar in particular seems to be particularly vulnerable to Hmm. warming, drying conditions. And um, it it relates back to what we were talking about earlier about their vascular system and how they transport water. particularly vulnerable.
1: Let's bring Paul in here because I want to talk about how hot has right. it been. Uh, you've studied extreme temperatures, you have a graphic here uh, maybe you could tell our viewers and our listeners about that shows uh, the number of 90-degree days and uh, you've told me about 2018 being especially extreme.
0: Right so it's really hard to overstate the importance of temperature and what we're talking about when it comes to climate change even we're talking about um, trees we talked about ice a couple of months ago. You know, the, the increase in temperatures is driving so many of these changes. Um, even under, we're just you know talking about drought and the, and the stress on trees. Even under normal rainfall, warmer temperatures are going to evaporate more of that water and, and increase yeah. that stress. Um, so, so the graphic that we're looking at is. Um, it's a graph of the number of mm-hmm. days of 90 degrees or greater um, in, in each year um, at Portland Airport. And um, for those listening, you can see there's a, a pretty clear upward trend throughout the, the record which starts around 1939 with two years in particular really standing out, 2015 and 2018. 2018 was the year that we had the most days of 90 degrees or higher at, in the Portland record. That was 31 days. Mm-hmm. Um, so that increase is certainly consistent with our overall warming of average temperature, it's consistent with the overall warming of global temperature, but then those extreme years are kind of wake-up calls to what we might be seeing, what what we will be seeing more of as we go into the future in, in coming decades.
1: Matt, what about you? I know you've observed uh, the hot temperatures too over the years.
2: Yeah, a couple thoughts. Um, the 2018 is interesting because it set the record, but I, what really stands out in my memory is 2015 because we had that stretch of hot weather from late July into August. We hit 106 twice, which is only one degree shy of Portland's all-time record of 107, which has only happened three times. And we thought we were going to break that all-time record, that 107. Turns out we had some high clouds. We didn't quite get there, but I think Vancouver did, Vancouver, Washington. So that stretch in 2015 was amazing because it was like 20 days in a row, whereas in 2018 we had a a greater number, but they were spread out more. Either way, the impact is there. I think it's also to point. Out and discuss a little bit the urban heat island effect because a lot of our viewers and listeners will be going, wait a minute, it's always warmer in the city. And that is true. The urban heat island effect is well known, has been well documented for decades and decades, but I think what we're seeing, and, and you can verify this or not, Paul, what we're seeing is that the, uh, the urban heat island, while the cities are warmer, they're also getting warmer in a warming climate. That's right. And so, this, this trend of increase in, in warm temperatures,
0: but also increase in the frequency of extreme warm temperatures, is present whether you're in the urban environment or the rural environment relative to the historical record of that place. So, cities are hotter places because of the urban heat island effect that we're talking about. That sort of elevates the overall background temperature, but that trend in those spikes and these extremes sort of roll—you know, they are loading the dice to get more sure. of these extremes, regardless of whether you're in the urban environment or outside of the urban or over the ocean. We're seeing increases in, in yeah, ocean heat right. waves mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, we
2: are marine and, heat waves.
1: And Tada, you're seeing this though as the cities really are an opportunity—these heat islands—for your your students to be able to. See what's happening later on.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, if we think back to that graphic of the urban heat island effect, I think one of the things that's really, as a scientist, striking to me, it's. Um, I often tell my students that, you know, that they're doing science in the city is kind of um, doing science in the future because of the high temperatures that we experience here, even in downtown Portland, because of the elevated CO2 concentrations that we experience in the city, the elevated uh, ozone concentrations. So in many ways, the plants are already living in the future. And so for those of us who are plant physiologists or scientists and want to understand, hey, how might a Douglas fir or big leaf maple respond to those future climates which are coming? The, the urban system is a perfect experiment. Um, to sort of begin to answer some of those questions. It's
1: really questions. an opportunity for yeah, students to, to be working in the yeah. future. Erin, we have some great pictures of your students and yeah. some of Todd's students out in the field. Tell us how you do your research. I mean, they're way up there in the trees, aren't they?
3: They are, yeah. So first, I just want to give a plug to the awesome students that we have the opportunity to work with at Reed College. A lot of this research is being done through undergraduate-led research projects. So these are students that are seniors doing their thesis research with us, Uh, summer long research projects. And and a lot of this was really initially driven by the things that they were interested in, the questions they wanted to answer. So, uh, as you can see, we have to come up with some pretty creative ways to do this work. Um, One of those is using arborist techniques to ascend into the canopies of these trees and collect those branches that you see Claire holding there. And um, then we bring those branches back to the lab and that's what we use to measure the vascular health of the trees. Um, but it's been a, a really uh, important project for us to try and figure out new strategies for getting at these really important research questions, and the students are a big part of that. Todd, What's it called you? again? The mobile what lab? <laughs> so we have a, a mobile field lab uh, that I call the Bio Base Camp. That cool. I love that. It's it's so it's a base camp because it's an Airstream base camp trailer nice. that we've added solar panels and lithium-ion batteries too and what it allows us to do is run any of our lab equipment anywhere away from campus. Oh so, very cool. Um, That kind of a platform allows you to really take the lid off the creativity for the students and um, they can propose projects that would be difficult, if not impossible, for other research labs to Mm -hmm. replicate.
1: I wanted to ask you about a story we did recently on KGW that has to do with green roofs. and This building is known as the Tree Farm. It's on Southeast 3rd Avenue in Morrison. Maybe you've seen it. You can see it from the Morrison Bridge. and The building has living trees growing on the outside of the building on every story of a city of Portland requires buildings over 20,000 square feet in the central city to have green roofs over 100% of the rooftop. It's called the eco roof requirement, but this takes it to a whole nother level. Um, there's all sorts of green roofs you'll notice around the city, and, and Todd, I know you studied this. How mm-hmm. much of a difference does this make to the urban landscape?
4: Wow, it's a great question. So you know, one of the ways I, in my brain I, I connect green roofs to urban trees is really this big continuum of greenness in the city. And so, as Matt reminded us, the power of the city, of the trees and sort of well-being and, and feeling good about the city, and I think that's also part of the role of, of eco roofs and green roofs. To, to when you look out your window, or your apartment, you can see green, um, but they also play a huge role in sort of ecosystem services. So in the same way. That the trees are sort of regulating, um, perhaps cooling effect of the urban heat island, uh, effects of, of water flow and transport. Uh, green roofs are doing something very similar. So many of the same. Ideas and principles we're learning out of our tree work also totally
2: apply to what's going on in the eco roofs. So
1: we'll look at the green roofs a little differently from now on. I know, Matt, you had a question about the effect of of lower temperatures on our trees.
2: Yeah, so what we've noticed in the temperature record is that the low temperatures are staying, are warming as well as all of our temperatures are, but they're warming at a greater rate. So in other words, it's not getting as cold as at night as it has been in the past. So we're seeing warmer overnight low temperatures, especially during the warm season. So I'm curious if that is having an impact on our trees especially in the urban landscape.
3: Sure yeah I I think it's a good example of um, how there's a lot of different things going on with climate change. It's not just one thing, it's not just the warmer temperatures and the increased drought mortality. Um, The warmer winter temperatures means that our growing seasons are getting longer. So especially deciduous trees, something like big leaf maple, um, is able to activate earlier in the growing season. And one of the potential risks of that is that Even though the temperatures are warmer, there's still a probability of freezing events. And when um, plants are early in that growing cycle, when they get hit with a freezing event, it can cause damage to the plant in ways that will impair it later in the year.
2: So could that have an impact on our agricultural economy? If you have a longer growing season, let's say the trees aren't as dormant as long as they used to be, will that impact fruit and bud production if they're more active over a longer period and don't get that dormancy?
3: Absolutely, I mean, yeah, I think the longer growing seasons is gonna have a big impact on agricultural systems and as well as our native forests.
1: Todd, what are your thoughts? You said you're the, the carbon person.
4: Oh well, what I love about Matt's question is that uh, in, um, in the world of tree physiology, can kind of be split into two camps: those who think about trees from water, tro- trees; those who think about trees from carbon. And in the uh, for us carbon chasers, uh, this temperature, of, this question of nighttime temperature is a really critical one. That's actually kind of blowing up in the literature. Right. Um, we all know that as you know, bi- biological organisms, their metabolism is very much cued to sort of the growth temperature regime, and people are just starting to understand. ask questions about, wait, how does this shift of night temperature of, uh, um, change some of the basic metabolism of trees? Is it um, accelerating the rates of which they're using up stored carbon reserves? Is it slowing it down? Uh, and In fact, that's part of our, uh, the research that we're working on in Portland, is, is to tie this gotcha. sort of relationship. Oh, you have some
1: thoughts on low temperatures.
0: Yeah. I think it's a really important point. It maybe doesn't get as much attention as extreme hot daytime temperatures. It certainly, you know, isn't as dramatic and necessarily, um, you know, immediately uncomfortable. Although we probably experience it um, in in hot summer nights. But this this um, higher rate of warming of nighttime summer temperatures is not just important for um, the you know plants and things we're talking about, but for human health, um, human safety when it comes to. to, Threats to human health from heat nighttime, warm nighttime lows are really, really important. Mm -hmm. And as humidities go up, because the atmosphere can hold more water vapor when it's warmer, nighttime lows can't drop as much. So we're seeing that effect in a lot of places in the summer.
2: I also want to mention for our podcast listeners and our viewers too, we've talked a lot largely about um, temperature. There's a reason that we're not talking as much about precipitation, and that's because the climate signal in terms of precipitation is not, there really isn't that great of a signal as to how human induced global temperature changes are impacting precipitation. I think especially in our marine environment, living so close to the ocean, we're not seeing a big drop off in our average annual precipitation as we go into a warmer climate. So you were saying there are some signals there, but it's not nearly as strong as the temperature signal.
0: Right, and temperature is just so important even when it comes to precipitation, because even with the same amount of precipitation, warmer temperatures evaporate that faster. Sure. I
1: I want to take the chance to to ask you what kind of difference we can all make, because people may be thinking, wow, this sounds pretty gloomy, you know we hear a lot in Salem about cap and trade and the effort to reduce carbon emissions and some people say no matter what we do even if we got all the cars off the road it's not gonna make a big enough difference globally Um, do you have a response for that let's start with Todd
4: well I I mean I think you know the science is fairly unequivocal we all I think we all have some responsibility in sort of working to stabilize and bring down greenhouse gas emissions and so I mean I think in terms of the way in which an individual can can execute that, whether it's conscious decisions about your transportation or your car choice or how you're commuting or or you know where you're spending your money, uh, I think is really critical to sort of anything we can do to bring those CO two concentrations down um, will, will will help us all. You will
3: know? we'll will help the trees. Um, yeah, so I think there's a rising note of hope here as well. So there's some recent research that suggests um, if we follow some of these lower emission scenarios through the twenty first century, um, the amount and severity uh, and frequency of tree killing droughts can be much lower than, than it would be if we keep those emissions high um, like they are now. So I think there's, there's an opportunity here for the decisions we make over the next decade to still have a large impact.
1: We just have 30 seconds, Matt, so would you wrap it up for us? Well,
2: I was just going to say, you know, back to your point, you know, saying that if all of Oregon stopped driving cars, it still wouldn't have a big impact on the global CO. That's abdicating our personal responsibility. That's like saying you're going on a cross-country car trip and you throw a bag of garbage out the window. It doesn't matter. It's a 3,000-mile-long highway. It does matter. It all starts with individuals and states and so on and so forth.
1: Well, I want to thank all of you for being here. Matt Zafino, Todd Rosensteel, Aaron Ramirez, Paul Loiketh. Thank you, and I hope you come back. I, I know these are the early stages of your studies as you make progress on the study, and give, a, give us a progress report. I think everybody would be interested in that. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you. And thank you for watching and listening. Don't forget to download our new podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for KGW Straight Talk. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk. Have a great week.